0: This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it
1: was a green slide.
2: Safe Liberal seat, two-term
1: incumbent, independent. We need to go
0: back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened.
1: Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia.
0: Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly
2: on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined by Anna Henderson, who she's the Chief Political Correspondent and the Bureau Chief with SBS World News. It's her first time with us here in The Party Room. Hooray. And PK, this week, whether you like it or not, I know you're over it. The week dominated again by the Morrison Secret Ministry scandal.
0: Yeah, um, look, uh, only over it because um, I think sometimes it can get a bit repetitious, but not over it in terms of its importance no, to democracy. Of course I just not. want to make that clear because I do think Sorry, it's Sorry, PK, really... of course. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I just want to make that crystal clear. I don't take this story lightly. Uh, the Solicitor-General's advice finally came out, which found there were, were no legal issues with Scott Morrison taking on the resources portfolio. Well, we knew... Really, I think that that was likely, that it wasn't going to find, that it was illegal. But the secrecy, the, the, the advice said, fundamentally undermined the conventions of a responsible government. Now, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has ordered a broader inquiry to make sure this can't happen again. Here's the Prime Minister. It's agreed that it would be good. It needs to be uh, not a political inquiry, but an inquiry with an, an eminent Uh, person with a legal background uh, to consider all of the implications so what did you make of that Fran he definitely seems aware the whole episode risks appearing like and this is the language that we're hearing now from several front benches including Stuart Robert the friend of Scott Morrison like a political witch hunt I don't think it is but that's what they are
2: Yeah, mindful of that. So I think we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. I think it's worth staying for a moment with the advice from the Solicitor-General and then how Labor responds, Um, PK. The Solicitor-General's advice was just that. It was advice. It wasn't an inquiry. It wasn't an investigation. It was just advice, but pretty damning advice, really, about the former Prime Minister's breaking of conventions. As you've said, he did nothing illegal. That was the finding, and Scott Morrison and his supporters within the coalition are very keen to sort of lean on that point but what he did do in taking that unilateral secret action was clearly outside democratic conventions that are fundamental. Let me just read the Solicitor-General's advice. He said this was, quote, inconsistent with the conventions and practices that form an essential part of the system of responsible government prescribed by the Constitution. He went on to explain that is because it is impossible for Parliament And the public to hold ministers accountable for the proper administration of particular departments if the identity of the ministers who have been appointed to administer those departments is not publicised. In other words, PK, if if lower house MPs, I mean, the government only governs with the support of the majority in the house of reps. If the MPs aren't aware of which minister is responsible for decisions in health or treasury or home affairs, whatever it is, how can they have confidence in the government? But... As I started by saying the Solicitor-General's advice was just that it doesn't get us any closer to how did this happen or even why did this happen. Now, as we heard there, Anthony Albanese has announced an inquiry, but details are scant. We don't yet know when, we don't know who or how or, or what its powers will be. Will it have the powers of a Royal Commission, for instance, be able to compel people to come before it? It was surprising to me when the Prime Minister, you know, revealed the advice on, I think it was Tuesday this week, PK, that he he wasn't ready to go with these details straight away and that caused some to ask questions of, is Labor going slow here politically, mm-hmm. trying to draw out the pain for the opposition? I think the answer is probably closer to, you know, you've got to find an ex-judge who's got the time to do it. But I understand that senior Cabinet ministers have met to finalise the details. It's likely it'll be announced this week. And the hot tip is it'll be short, sharp and shiny mode of inquiry, not Mm -hmm. a a long-drawn-out thing, and it won't have the powers to compel anyone. It won't have Royal Commission powers. In other words, Scott Morrison couldn't be forced to appear before it. So... You know, In the meantime, Anthony Albanese has guaranteed his government will recommend to the Governor-General that all changes to ministerial appointments must be published. So, you know, for all intents and purposes for the life of this government anyway, that loophole is now closed.
0: Interesting if it doesn't have Royal Commission powers and can't compel people to see the way people participate mm, then, right? Because very the pressure, interesting, right? Yes. <laughs> right. So let's talk about one of those people, and that's the main one, the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. He put out a very lengthy statement, and and in it he he made clear, which says everything about how he views this, I think, that, you know, mm. sure, he'll participate if it's in an inquiry, if it's wide-ranging and involves the states and territories and is about the difficulties of the pandemic, uh, you know, read between the lines. He, he's putting, he's putting his ring fencing his yeah. involvement, and um, really sheeting it back to the pandemic. Now, Mark Dreyfus, the Attorney General, responded immediately uh, when asked the next day and said, "Hang on a minute. The decisions he made." weren't all about the pandemic and I agree with that and so do many Liberal frontbenchers because if you look at the appointment of himself, uh, Scott Morrison, to, to the role of Treasurer and the role of Home Affairs Minister, I mean, sorry, but we're not stupid. That wasn't a pandemic-related move at all. And the idea was, he even says by his own admission, that it was about looking at ministers that had unilateral powers um, so that if they weren't acting in the national interest, he could intervene. I mean, this was, sorry, but he said it himself. Uh, So uh, it's not even, like, confusing. It's the opposite. So what's he doing
2: here? Is he trying to give himself a get-out-of-jail-free card because he knows that the inquiry Anthony Albanese will announce this week or whenever he does it, is not going to be the Royal Commission into the COVID pandemic. There is a place for that and a time for that, and I think there must be, we've said it before on this podcast, there should be a Royal Commission into the handling of the pandemic. But this is not that. This is a a short, targeted inquiry into this issue, Mm. how it came to be, who gave the advice, who made the decisions to not make it public, what decisions were made while the Prime Minister held those secret ministries. That's what this is about. Is... Scott Morrison giving himself an out here. I'm not going to participate with that. We he, see we see all his um you know, not all of them, but some of his colleagues um saying, well, it's a witch hunt, you know, is this just more Tory bashy, I think bashing Stuart Roberts said to you. So they're certainly lining up there for him to say that. But in the end, I think it' look terrible for Scott Morrison uh, if he's t- if he didn't appear yep. before it, don't
0: you? because he's, colleagues are red hot with rage, as I said last week, using the term again, because they are, right? So they're upset. Um, how can he then say, oh, I'm not going to front this inquiry when the Solicitor General has found that he he didn't act in the best, you know, this yeah. was not the way that the government's meant to run. So there is going to be political pressure on him um, to do it and probably pressure from his own colleagues. I think they're running a little few few different lines here. I think there's pressure on the opposition about the way they're going to respond. We haven't heard a lot from Peter Dutton still, I think, on this. Others have been out. Uh, Deputy Liberal Leader Susan Lee has suggested the focus should be on cost of living, not looking back at the previous government. So they're kind of closing in ranks a bit. But by the same token... There are others, and I spoke to Simon Birmingham, for instance, on RN Breakfast, and he says he does think that any inquiry should look at, you know, whether the Prime Minister was warned and how other arms, you know, worked. And that's something the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull also said to me this week, that he thinks there needs to be a wider inquiry if such a radical piece of action was about to be taken by the prime minister did anyone warn him about this friend all of these questions need to be asked and resolved and if he wasn't warned if that is possibly true then what happened why yeah what Why? happened
2: how did this how did this occur that's what we need to find out and if, and then presumably an an outcome of this will be of this inquiry will be what do we need to do to make sure it doesn't happen again and that I imagine would be some kind of legislation down the track to to make sure that any ministerial appointments are gazetted or made public so that's all to come but i think anna henderson our guest this morning will have a lot of these answers what do you reckon pk time let's bring her in <laughs>
0: Anna Henderson, SBS World News Chief Political Correspondent and Bureau Chief. Welcome to the party room
1: and first time customer. How are you? Oh, so pleased to be here, definitely in need of a, a small wine. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome. It's terrific
2: to have you here. And now we've got you here once. Now we've broken that through that barrier. You'll be a regular. Thanks, Anna. Hey, Anna, let's kick off with Ministry Gate again. PK and I have just been speaking about it. But um, this inquiry that's going to follow the Solicitor General's inquiries, I understand the details um, will be announced this week. But you know, wasn't it was it a problem, or did it surprise you that Anthony Albanese wasn't ready to go with the name of the eminent legal person to run it in the terms of reference? What is the holdup, and is it a problem politically for the government, or do they want this over with too as quickly as they can, so it's not seen to be a distraction from the hip pocket matters that that you know most of us would want our governments to be focused on?
1: It just doesn't seem like they want this to go away at all because I think they see a lot of political capital in keeping this issue in the spotlight and potentially drawing out more from the opposition leader in terms of Peter Dutton having to distance himself from Scott Morrison and what he stood for and it sort of damages the Liberal brand more and more. Uh, Look, I'm not inside the strategy here, but it does appear like this is designed to keep this in the news cycle over a longer period of time as well as delving into really important issues about how our democracy functions. Uh, so it does seem like the this, the plan here is to to delve deeper, and um, the belief within the Labor Party is that there is the public appetite for this. But I must say, I do spend a bit of time outside of the press gallery sometimes, um, and particularly as a mum, I have a whole kind of group of friends who are so outside of this world, and they're tiring of this story, and they're you know dealing with things like childcare and dealing with cost of living. They're kind of keen to get back onto how are you going to solve the problem that matter in our lives now. So I, I think there is a fine line for the government to walk here in terms of just how much focus they continue to put on this issue. Yeah,
0: I think that you're right, Anna, There is because I, I noticed on my text line too, there is a fatigue... Uh, Mm. at the story, but there is also an acknowledgement of its importance, interestingly, you can have both at the same time, right, fatigue about hearing about it, but also an awareness that it's important. Mm. I spoke to former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull this week on breakfast, and you'd expect he had a few ideas on what the inquiry should do, you know, he's Mm. no, no great fan of the former Prime Minister, and that's an important point to make, but... He said we need to look at the checks and balances in our system. And I think he made an important point. The, the Prime Minister and Cabinet Department uh, and the PMO itself, that's the Prime Minister's office, the Governor-General's um, mm. office and the Governor-General, and one of these tiers of government, he says, should really have warned the Prime Minister that this wasn't going to end well. Here he is.
1: We are entitled to expect that our, all of our officials, whether they're in the Prime Minister's office, whether they're in the department, Prime Minister and Cabinet, whether they're at Government House, should be defending the Constitution. And at the very least, putting up a big red sign that says, stop, Prime Minister, this is a really bad idea, think again.
0: Stop. Bad Mm. idea. Think again. I think he makes a good point, actually. You yes. would have thought that would have happened. So any inquiry needs to look at all of that. Now, people may have already heard about the inquiry when they hear this podcast. We record it on a Thursday
1: morning. There will be more details. But is it likely to look at all of those elements? Well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? You'd hope that it does. Uh, The Prime Minister, when he came into power, was talking about how he wanted to re-empower the public service and give them the space to create policy and not have a situation where Cabinet Ministers were making all the decisions regardless of the information before them. So there's this broader context to Anthony Albanese saying that the public service matters. But in relation to this, the who knew what when, who raised red flag when, I think is still really important. And I think some of the fatigue does come down to the fact that, you know, the media's is um, probably a part of this. We all were expecting that the legal advice was gonna likely be made public potentially on the Monday, but in fact that day, the news cycle was devoted to it going to cabinet and being considered, you know, it'd been handed to the prime minister. So it sort of just dragged out mm. over a number of days. And the prime minister says that's because he was following all the due processes. Uh, but I think that also may have contributed to people thinking, well, when are we actually going to get the information? Like, what's all of this media um, commentary and, and the cycle actually contributing to our understanding of how our democracy functions?
2: Mm. I mean, I actually like to hear a Prime Minister say they're going to follow due process, you know, so if you can trust that that's the impetus. And, you know, it probably was to some large extent. I've already mentioned they also had to find a former judge who's got the time to do it. Which is probably a thing. Um, Mm. So that's a good reason for things not to be just sort of rushed out in the in the news cycle, in twenty four hour media cycle. Um, But but then it's you know what does it do? It strikes me as as you're talking there, and we heard Malcolm Turnbull there too. It reminds me that it just if we get these people appearing before it. Will it give us insights into how some of these offices, uh, political offices, and their interrelation with the departments run? For instance, remember the Phil Gaitchen's inquiry into Brittany Higgins that we never got? And remember, there was that inquiry within the Prime Minister's office into that affair that we really got no details of. It just, I think, got sort of closed down. There's nothing to see here. I can't remember exactly. But it's that sort of, you know, that was tantalising. It never went anywhere. And now this one has become public. There will be an inquiry. I want I wonder if it will sort of shed any light on how these things are operating and who's making decisions to either, you know, shield information or or or, or bury information or, or whatever it is.
1: So that so that'll come down to what's in the terms of reference of the inquiry. So it'll be so fascinating to see the wording of that and whether it creates the space to go back in time to other decisions. You know, that's that's where that would potentially come into play. And of course, from a journalistic perspective, be of great interest mm.
2: i mean i'm sure it won't go to that specific issue but we're shed shedding light on it so where do you think this saga goes from here then and beyond some political stench perhaps for a few people it's, it's mm. likely i think to recommend changes to the law to make secret ministerial appointments um you know make it mandatory that they be publicized advertised at the time is that going to be about
1: the extent of it do you think well, and then the question becomes, well, couldn't we have just done that now? Um, obviously, I, I'm in favour of anything that throws more light on these issues. But I think there is, a, I guess, a question still about what could have already been done, regardless of this inquiry, to try and tighten this up now so that you know any government uh, isn't able to keep this kind of information away from public scrutiny. The other question is about Scott Morrison's future and what he decides to do and how he can come back to Parliament and continue to sit there as the local member and I know Karen Andrews has gone as far as calling for him to step aside from the Parliament completely um, and whether the, or not this Privileges Committee investigation will ever get up which, which does have quite significant powers and potential um, to you know have a, a ramification for Scott Morrison himself. So I think his future is still an interesting aspect of this, you know, a prime minister who got us through the pandemic, but his reputation is really forever tarnished by the fact that this has come through.
0: Look, let's move, if if you don't mind, to another big thing that's happened. We're recording this on a Thursday morning and the government has just announced a royal commission that it, it had promised at the election, but now actually the details of it into the robo um scandal. Uh, they've said that they it wanna preempt recommendations, but that it should examine why the previous government didn't act when they, you know, were warned. Um, and and really this is obviously a promise that they're executing. But Anna, this is kind of potentially quite embarrassing, isn't it, for the former government?
1: Absolutely. And there was some school of thought this week that because the government already planned to announce this Royal Commission and, you know, there was so much uh, discussion about this in the campaign, particularly from from Bill Shorten prosecuting these arguments, that, you know, that broader discussion about a pandemic Royal Commission of some time really did have to be parked Mm. because it was going to be, you know, terrible optics to be announcing two Royal Commissions in one week and they wanted to provide space for this. I don't know the veracity of that, but some within the government have sort of decided. Discussed that as a as a potential issue that the prime minister was weighing up, but this inquiry obviously it's so emotive. This issue and how this is unfolded um, is seen by many advocates in the sector as such a travesty, um, and 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 had a, a human toll um, on mental health, physical health, and in some cases a very sad ending for people who were at the the other receiving end of this policy. So um, this will be very damaging you would think for the former government once we look into the entrails of how all this unfolded. Mm. And potentially for some senior public servants I would think because there was a big you know we
2: remember some of those senate inquiries there seemed to be big fault if I recall correctly on the part of some senior public servants, about how this was managed. Mm. Um, So,
1: again, it's something that will have its sort of tentacles in there too. Um, And And the uh, financial question, Fran, I mean, what are the financial implications here as well? Because if there are further evidence of wrongdoing that's uncovered, can people take further action in the courts? And that's an an active question as well.
2: Yeah, there was big, big... Uh, ripples from this into people's lives financially and and beyond financially too, in terms of, well, life or death really for some. Um, And uh, the Albanese government's busy calling a Royal Commission. There'll be another inquiry called this week we just discussed, but it's also going to hold a job summit on Thursday and Friday of next week, bringing together business unions, welfare groups to help try and set the agenda for the term of government and propose ideas that will help boost the economy, boost wages and productivity growth, which is really the platform that the Albanese government was elected on. Mm. Already, we've got the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, playing down expectations. I'm not naive about it. I don't expect unanimity. There will not be
0: unanimity at the at the job summit. Uh, there'll be areas of common ground. There'll be other more contentious areas. But the thing that I found really heartening, in fact, I found it inspiring, uh, is people's willingness to engage I think people recognise we've had this wasted
2: decade of missed opportunities and needless conflict and all of this complacency. And
0: there's a change of mindset in the country that says, let's at least try and find the areas where there is sufficient common ground for the government and the country to move forward.
2: Now, Anna, do you think that's wishful thinking by the Treasurer? Is there a change of mindset? There's not going to be unanimity. So therefore, what purpose will it achieve, do you think, for the government and the country?
1: Well, it, it is a risk in some ways to so early in their time in in power, when you know we're at the one hundred day point for the prime minister on Monday to bring together a book could be a very kind of tinderbox environment of the people who want to see economic growth at its highest level for big businesses to earn a lot of money and unions trying to kind of find where they fit into an increasingly de-unionised workforce. Um, You know, someone said to me during the week, who's representing all the non-unionised workers, which is, um, uh, you know, the system that we have doesn't mean that we have those kind of advocates. But I I do think that there is... uh, value in bringing all these groups together but we still don't know who the groups are and maybe by the time this is published we'll see a guest list but we've seen the agenda now we've seen what the the treasurer is saying about what he wants to achieve unions and business leaders are talking but we still don't know exactly who will Mm. be sitting around that table it's been a very tightly held guest list and i'm told some of those phone calls are still being made but eventually someone is going to get left out and they will have a (laughs) loud voice in um in not getting an invitation and i'm sure. Um, you know, that the government is hastily working out how it can maybe damage control some of the people who find that they haven't been invited to the party.
0: Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of controversy. But look, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I guess always, it's always going to be limited, and there's always someone with the yeah. Those but you can read
2: things into it, can't you? I mean, the, a lot's being read in the fact that the big banks out there—they're major employers—and they're not invited, but the superannuation funds are, and the superannuation funds, of course, the, some of the biggest ones have strong links to the to the union. So you can read things into who or who doesn't get a Guernsey.
1: Absolutely. And the other aspect of this is that I think what the Prime Minister envisaged is something like the traction that Bob Hawke got with the accord, that idea of you know bringing everyone together and having some kind of conclusion. Because when you look back at Cabinet papers, for example, I mean, that Hawke era accord is seen as this great positive move for the nation. So the pressure for him to in some way replicate that, or at least keep all these different interests on side in this process, um, I think is pretty enormous. It's There's huge pressure and a huge build-up too
0: because of all of that history that you mentioned and I think that history is really important. Um, now, you know, now the demands come out and it just demonstrates how difficult it is to land anything, uh, it, particularly in the tough industrial relations space, I think, where, you know, <laughs> you've got really very, very established positions from labour and capital and I'm going to use those terms deliberately because it seems very... Old school in terms of the way that they're just yeah going at it. Uh, unions want that, want those industry-wide negotiations to, to see wages rise. Industry says that's very 1960s and uh, closing, you know, this is old school and we wouldn't want to go back to that. That puts the government in a wicked position, doesn't it, right, Anna? Um, mm. Surely, though, knowing how governments work, they would know where the areas of some consensus might be that they can walk out with. They need to walk out with some wins, don't they?
1: Well, this is what I'm predicting um, from my very much, you know, uh, seat in the the cheap seats with my (laughs) popcorn for this summit. But I do think that there is already a strategy in place in the government and the answer here is migration. And the answer here is increasing the cap and it's been widely reported that, you know, the way to try and supercharge the economy and give all these interests a bone here is to say, okay, we need to really open up our migration system. We need to get the visa processing backlog uh, dealt with and actually bring more people in to work in all of these jobs that are going begging at the moment. You know, that the hospitality industry is just tearing its hair out. You can only get a beer five days a week in some pubs now because they just don't have the staff. So I I think that's probably where a lot of these different elements can possibly agree, but, of course, the pressure is then on the unions because existing workforces say, well, you're you're giving up our pay rise because you're bringing all these other people in and we're not going to get that pay bump that we haven't had for many years.
2: Okay, so there's going to be, if you're right, a trade-off because businesses made it clear their number one priority is lifting these migration numbers so they Mm. can get these these, um, skilled and unskilled visa workers in in greater numbers because we, you know, really closed the borders during COVID and a lot of people had to leave the country and we've got these huge shortages. Um, So the unions, as you mentioned, aren't going to like that, but they have been busy. You know, they're not going to miss this opportunity. They've put already on the table a lot of economic reform proposals, tax reform proposals, and now this, you know, sector-wide or whatever we want to call it, bargaining idea. So what's going to keep them happy? We've got Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, saying the enterprise bargaining system is broken. So they're signalling to the unions and to business that there will be change there, aren't they? Is it going to be... A lot of money on the table for skills or, you know, will do you think the government will give or will force business to give something to the unions around enterprise bargaining? Because I think, you know, when Sally McManus, the, the secretary of the ACTU, says, you know, if you think a worker in a small childcare centre has a bargaining power... You know, a a, a la enterprise bargaining, you know, you're living in a fantasy land that they really need a better system to help them negotiate with their employees in in small business after small business. And we've got so many people, of course, in the gig economy now. So there really does need to be a change that enterprise bargaining isn't working for so many workers now.
1: Mm. So I guess everyone's going to come out ahead of the summit and give their sort of blue sky thinking position, just like when you go to um, bid on a house at an auction and everybody's got their sort of limit, but they've also got you know what their like <laughs> upper limit good is as analogy. well. And as we get closer, everyone will get closer together. And I cannot see a position. I'm happy to eat my akubra if this <laughs> does happen. But sector wide agreements, I just don't think biz- big business is going to come at that. Yeah, no but way. perhaps there's some kind of on the continuum point where there can be more agreement. But the politics behind this can't be forgotten because even if the business groups and the the unions want to agree, but there's also the politics behind it of not wanting to to necessarily have a full agreement because politically um, nobody wants to feel like they're aligning with the other side of politics necessarily. So it's it's going to be a very complex um, party when it does happen. Summit, some are calling it. <laughs> and um, I, I, I don't, I'm just really interested to see where they land. Yeah, well, it's going to be I'm really I'm sure your invitation's
0: on the way, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> now, just one other angle in all of this that I think is really important and certainly motivates me, and I know you too, actually, Anna. Uh, prominent businesswoman Christine Holgate, who's now the CEO of Toll Global Express, has said part of the solution to labour shortages is to get ready for this, guys. Increase women's participation in work. Here she is on breakfast. I think we've also got to understand why do we only have the 13 million women living in
2: Australia, we only have 3 million women working full-time. What are the barriers for women, not just for my industry, to get more women working full-time? You know, we often talk about women have 50% of the men and all those things, Patricia, But we're not going back to the root causes of why women are not working full-time.
0: So, Anna, the Summit program is kicking off next Thursday morning with equal opportunities and pay for women. Mm. I put to the Treasurer on my Thursday morning interview, you know, would they bring forward childcare changes? He did confirm that they actually had looked at that now and they, they have been considering it, but it's very expensive, he said. Uh, they, they've got to move this. They've got to shift the dial
1: on this, don't they? And what the government cannot now ignore is that during the pandemic, so many parents went home and worked from home. They spent a lot more time with their kids and they remembered or they realised or they had for once the chance to actually engage with their children more if they're in full-time work and to realise the benefits of that for their own mental and physical health as well, well as for their kids. Um So I think that a lot of people are factoring this into their decision making now and a lot more blokes are deciding, actually, I don't really want to work like the same massive hours and full time work that I did. So I'm willing to give a bit and my partner can have a bit more of a chance. Uh, But it, it really breaks my heart when I see the friends of mine who really want to get back into work. And it's not just the fact that they have to pay their entire wage in daycare. It's also the feeling that when they go on maternity leave that it's considered sort of like a break. Yeah. Whereas it's a (laughs) full-time massive job and they, they lose so much of that sense of their own importance to the economy. So... In my view, it needs to be this huge piece of work done to empower women to say just because you've had a child and taken time out, you've actually learned new skills. Project management, you know, working with no sleep, um, working 24 hours a day, like these are things that you can bring back to a workplace. But at the moment, it's not just that, like people would go back and work for nothing just to be back in yeah. in a workplace mm. sometimes and that's what they're doing but and also, I think that's unfair.
2: But also when I heard Christine Holgate say that, and then again, you know, why are only three million women and working full-time, I think you you touched on it there, Anna, that people have discovered that not being away from their kids with full-time work is actually uh, not just... You know delightful um, but positive for them in all sorts of ways and maybe mm. po- positive on a productivity level too you think um so mm-hmm. you know maybe that's something too that is not just about getting women back into the workforce full-time certainly if women want to do it we do need all those things you're talking about changes of attitude there to make that um, affordable and, um, and 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 recognize them for them to be supported to do that when they come back from maternity leave but maybe other ways of working so both parents aren't necessary wanting to work full-time and changing things and making them more flexible and the childcare available
1: to support that too because I think that's that's an element of this discussion as well, isn't it? And I'm speaking from the very lucky position here of actually having childcare options and a lot of women don't even have a childcare option to put their kids into a caring environment so they can re-enter the workforce in regional areas or some parts of major cities because they just aren't the staff and it comes back to the Skills Summit question of, you know, how you employ and pay people adequately to do the work of caring for our children. Quality care, Quality, quality early childhood care mm. but you know I'm setting aside kind of my parental hat here and saying like these are big issues for the budget and there's a lot of competing priorities here and I can understand why the government is balking at some of these childcare questions because they cost a lot of money.
0: Very pricey. Things can be very expensive, but it's all about priorities, as they say. Anna, as usual, um, I've always known this about you, and we've often privately had these conversations. You're an absolute legend. Now I've said it publicly too. Thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: (laughs) Thanks, guys. We'll just keep our popcorn ready for next week. (laughs) Thanks, Annie. You enjoyed that ringside seat. See ya. Bye. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the
2: call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister.
0: So, Fran, I used my Twitter platform to call for questions and, and in they work. flowed they did like they did so thank you to everyone if we're now not answering one of them don't get upset with us <laughs> do it again next time i call out we've chosen though um this one Matty is i think your name um at gus um oh, i'm not going to pretend to be able to pronounce your Gusty twitter handle gus. Yeah, yeah, see no nah. all right this is the question do you think the average voter understands the problem with ScoMo's me shuffle? Boom, boom, boom. boom. <laughs> it got, seems, Maddie, well done. Yeah, it was pretty good. It seems to me these conventions, important as they are, are only understood by a small political class. Fran?
2: Uh, well, I think that's probably right. They only are understood by, I wouldn't even call it a political class. I would just say few people who've... Um, bothered to think much about the Constitution and conventions. And if you've listened to many interviews with the constitutional lawyers, it can get pretty kind of mind-boggling. So I think that that's true, Maddie, that most people don't understand. But I think what people do understand, and your kind of, your your cute term there, me shuffle, really nails it, is that people understand that it's not right for a prime minister to give themselves secret powers that none of us know he's got, not even his cabinet colleagues. It's not right on a free fronts. simple, you know, cabinet solidarity and collegiality. That's not right. Cabinet government is the essence of our political system. We don't have a presidential system. The Prime Minister is first among equals of a cabinet. That's a basic tenet of our democratic parliamentary system. So everyone knows that's not right on the sort of decency front. It's also not right on the process front. And it's just not right because it looks sneaky, because we know that Ministerial appointments generally are a announced immediately in the parliament if parliament's sitting, and b gazetted or, or published somewhere. That these weren't I means somebody went out of their way to not do those things. So I think people understand that was wrong, but they do not understand the the constitutional conventions.
0: Yeah, it's look. I think there is a confusion to every single detail. But what I think that people do understand is the. I actually think this this argument, and I think it was Barnaby Joyce that actually used this argument when he spoke to David Spears on Insiders, he said, you know, people aren't talking about this at the checkout at the IGA yeah. or something like that, remember, Fran? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I think you're wrong, Barnaby Joyce. Yeah, I think it's you're one of those, too. Yeah, it's a real story that's actu- that's resonated. I've had everyone in in my world who isn't political and i've got lots of people who are not political in my world actually i've mixed with a lot of people uh, do raise this it's one of, and not every other story is raised with me because it does cut through. It's a simple one to understand. He secretly appointed himself to five extra ministries and you're not meant to do it.
2: And another reason I think, PK and it takes me back to a time many, many moons ago when John Howard was prime minister and there was a front page cover of the Bulletin magazine, which was, you know very high impact at the time. And it was all about a leaked memo from someone called Shane Stone, who was the Liberal Party federal president at the time, um, which talked about um, uh, polling that revealed that there was a sense that John Howard was mean and tricky and it was very damning. It was a label John Howard sort of had hung around his neck for quite a while, had trouble getting out. It was very damning for John Howard and was seen by such within the Liberal Party that this is what how the electorate was seeing him. And, you know, I think this is in the same vein, that this is sort of, you know, w- weak and sneaky by Scott Morrison and generally people don't like that kind of behaviour. It's not a characteristic people want in their friends or their leaders.
0: Yeah, that's that's right. And I think uh, that's why we have seen a real focus here that people are kind of really quite engaged in this story uh, but that, you know, at the IGA they're probably also interested in how expensive broccoli is too. So there probably yeah. there's a few different things that they care about and that's normal. Uh, people can be interested in lots of things all at the same time. People are very smart. Well, that's it for the podcast. Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them um, and you can tweet using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or just email your questions to ThePartyRoom at abc.net.au.
2: And remember to follow The Party Room on your ABC Listen app so you never, never miss an episode. Why would you want to do that?
0: Why would you want to do that? That's it for The Party Room this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.